Hi, my name is Dominique, and together with my team, we produce the content for our weekly Swisspreneur episodes. I hope you enjoyed today's show. That's what I believe many people in Switzerland lack a little bit, this kind of thing like, let's just do it, you know? Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and hands-on learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Nicholas, uh, very well, welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Sylvan. You are the co-founder and CEO of Nikin, a Swiss clothing and accessory brand that makes sustainable fashion affordable and has already planted more than 500,000 trees. Yes. I think that's incredibly impressive. And we're going to talk about how you got there in just a second. And before we do so, I'm interested to learn more about your background. I think one of the first contacts with the topic of entrepreneurship was actually during high school, Definitely. where you participated in the Young Enterprise Switzerland project, or short yes. And you co-founded there, sort of for a full year, uh, Vichy Line, a hand lotion to sanitize your hands. That smells good. That was the point of it. Like it, it was a good hand lotion. It smelled good. And it was during the swine flu time. So it worked out pretty well. We should have done it now again. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was my first experience with uh, entrepreneurship uh, in a like safe environment in school. And uh, that was kind of like showing me that it's possible to do something, to get sales and so on. And that was my first contact. That was pretty important for my, my future entrepreneurial career. What was your role there in that young enterprise? I think I was the HR person. <laughs> It wasn't the best role, actually, but uh, it was it was still a good experience. I mean, I was also involved in sales and marketing, which I, which I really like, but uh, yeah, everybody took all the decisions together. Got it. So for people that don't know, the, the YES project is basically during high school, you start on the site, a, a mini company, I think that's how they called it in, in, in German, exactly. for a full year where you actually have to develop a product and then sell it. And you also have like shareholders, usually relatives or parents, uh, usually uh, during the high school time. What was like the, the sort of the biggest takeaway or in what way has this year that you were active there influenced you and then also your entrepreneurial career? Well, it took away the fear of just doing something. And that's what I believe many people in Switzerland lack a little bit, this kind of thing like, let's just do it, you know? Many people think that uh, you need the perfect idea to start, but that's not the point. It's just about, not just, but it's about implementation. That's the most important thing. Right. And this is what we learned there. Like we had to go to booths or to markets, sell our stuff. We had to think of a website. We had to like actively call people and ask them if we could be in their shop. And so it took away the fear of all of this kind of like being the sales guy a little bit, doing marketing and uh, mm -hmm. also presenting on stage, pitching an idea, pitching a, a business. So that was super important that you learned that it's about implementation and not just about the idea. Absolutely. Because they didn't like the idea in the beginning, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> why not? I felt like, why? A hand sanitizer, hand lotion is not a sexy product, but uh, it was still pretty cool in the end. And yeah, it, it still worked out, right? So you got your learnings in there. What actually motivated you to, to join that project in the first place? Because it's not mandatory at school, right? It's you could have done something different. Was there any like family background that pushed you towards the entrepreneurial choice or what led you to that decision? Well, I come more from a, a medical family, actually. So, but That's I why the sanitizer, now it makes yeah, sense. Okay, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but it was actually not my idea. But uh, I think I like to sell stuff on Ricardo, on the eBay and so on. I, I, I bought stuff, sold it again, and somehow this 
selly thing and this having your own thing it, i don't know why but it somehow attracted me at that point and that's why i wanted to do it i was interested in business in general so i just thought why not yeah so there's better, nothing special i just thought why not? better than writing a, a boring paper or something of that sort right yeah exactly or learning spanish or french better i i mean it's also good but i preferred the yes project awesome and then after high school, you decided to go and study at the University of St. Gallen. You studied business administration there. Why didn't you just continue with your entrepreneurial adventures right after high school and <laughs> decided still to go and uh, do your studies? Well, we were thinking of continuing it. And I still have the ingredients for the hand sanitizer in the cellar of my father. But somehow in the end, our ways like all split up. And I think it was a mistake not to continue doing it. It would have worked. And, um, but studying was clear for me. I mean, I didn't have like a finished like education. Just high school is not that much. I mean, it's, it's, it's better to have a bachelor at least or an apprenticeship. So it was clear to me that at least that I should do. Yeah. Was that also like, you know, it's the normal way to do things. So just also to a certain degree, follow the flow. I think so. I mean, my parents also expected from me to that I do some more education or something. Right. I was not thinking that much about like, yeah, it's it's a moment to either do a startup or to study from your clear I study. Later in, in my in my life, well, it's not that old yet, but I uh, I had that decision more like now with a master, should I do the startup? Should I study? Yeah. Right. So it was not not a question. You just uh, went to university. And in what way has your bachelor's degree of business administration actually helped you to then become an entrepreneur, if at all? Well, first of all, I already had an interest in, in startups. I had a folder on my computer with not thousands, but hundreds of ideas where I wrote down what it was about and so on. And also joined the Young Entrepreneurs Club that was actually, uh, you were the president <laughs> in that club. Yeah, that's where we <laughs> yes. worked together. Yeah. Exactly. And But the most important thing is that I always wanted to do something, but I didn't know what the idea was, didn't have. I mean, I thought I need a better idea. But then uh, a colleague of mine or a study colleague, she started to have a brand which is kind of uh, Indian jewelry. And when I saw that she does that and that she imports the stuff from India and then sells, I was like, oh, wow. If she can do it, I can also do it. And that was the moment where I was like, come on, now I'll just do something. So I took one of my ideas, which was a backpack, but with more um, pockets. Mm -hmm. the ba not backpack, sorry, gym bag. That was pretty popular at that time. Right. And I found a supplier on Alibaba, like uh, bought the stuff, ordered samples and just started it and sold a few hundred bags. And that was kind of the start then. And then I realized, gosh, it's not that difficult to just start and that it's just important to just do it. And uh, yeah, there it really, really started then. I think you just uh, tackled many very, very interesting and important topics. So let's start with the first one. Uh, your colleague at high school, uh, not high school, at university actually, uh, who did this jewelry. So you were basically having this list of ideas and you were basically waiting for the perfect idea to hit you, but that didn't happen, right? Yes. And now I know that it's not about the perfect ideas, just not just, but it's about the implementation. It's about the execution. I mean, the idea is just such a small part of like what you do in the end. There's so many examples like where the idea was pretty bad in the beginning, but it turned out to be pretty good or a good business because it just did the right thing at the right time, implemented it well, had drive, passion, and so on. And I think that's way more important than the idea. Right. And were you also afraid of something, of failure, for example, that you didn't take action at first? I was afraid of judgment from people. I was afraid of... I'm not sure about... I was maybe afraid of the judgment of, because of the failure. I mean, also when I started this gym bag with pockets, 
people were more belittling me that, rather than cheering for me, even some of my friends, which for me was pretty demotivating. And uh, I also realized that it's more of a cultural thing in Switzerland. We like to have the security, not take risks, while America there is completely different. And therefore, I think in that aspect, we can take a little bit from the American, at least startup business culture in certain things. So. Absolutely. And then you spoke to your colleague at university. She was importing this jewelry, as you mentioned. And then you certainly realized that, hey, this is probably way less difficult or hard than you originally thought. Or what came to mind when, when you were talking exactly. to her? Exactly. I, I was too afraid of like, what does it mean to import something from a country? How do I write to suppliers? Where do I even find them? And then more things followed like a placard, like a, a, a billboard at a Bahnhof. I thought that's such a big deal. But in the end, you go on postdirect.ch, pay 300 francs, send a PDF, that's it, you know? These are the things I didn't realize. Oh, no, it's, it's not that difficult. You just have to do it. And um, these are things that I learned then. And she motivated me. She was a spark to, to tell me, hey, it's not that difficult. Just try it. Did she also help you in any way to get started? Or was it just the, the tipping point where you said, hey, this is the mindset change. I actually changed my mind from this is so difficult to I can do it. Or was there any additional help from her besides? To be honest, work? I'm not sure anymore. For sure, I asked her how she did it. But it was more like this initiation spark of, uh, come on, now you can also do it. Yeah. And why do you then decide to start with the gym bags that you were selling back then? It was pretty popular to have a gym bag at that time, which was, let's say, five, six, seven year, five years ago. But the gym bags had one problem. They, they were not that practical. I mean, I missed many phone calls when I had to search for my wallet when I was at the, the local supermarket. I took too long to get it. So I was like, why don't they have like more pockets? It was just one model with one pocket. But so I decided to make a pocket on the inside, two pockets on the outside. And it's not a brilliant idea, to be honest, but uh, it worked out pretty well. People liked it, especially because of functionality. And that's how I got to it. So basically, you solved your own problem to a certain degree. Yes, definitely. <laughs> That's a great starting yeah. point. And how did it then go about, you know, you need to find a producer, you need to order that, you also need some money at least to get started and then also generate first sales. So how did you go about the early days from taking the idea to actual execution? I asked my father to give me one, two or three thousand francs to lend it to me. And that was already enough. I mean, I ordered... 500 or 1,000 bags and then started off with that. I mean, I built my website and it doesn't cost a lot, maybe $100 a year. Did everything by myself, did a few Facebook ads, tried to sell mostly via friends. I didn't need that much money in the beginning. And it was also not a huge success. I, I think I sold like 500 bags mm -hmm. until the end, but that was already enough to like give me more craving for more to do something else. And um, yeah, then, but then during a certain time I was letting it slide. Okay, why? I have no idea. I don't Just know. Just other priorities. I think I had other priorities. I went abroad, actually. I met a girl, which is my wife now. <laughs> but then at some point, I was in uh, living in Winterthur in Switzerland, and I went to the post and I saw a guy. That was three years after the start of this gym bag, wearing my product. And I was like, gosh, if someone in Winterthur, because I'm not from there, I'm actually from the canton of Argau, is wearing that, then at least something I achieved during that time. And this was the mo motivation for me then to maybe try it again. And also my mother telling me at that time, come on, do it again. Come up with new colors. She was pushing me a lot, actually. And then I said, okay, let me just do it. So I asked Robin, which is the son of my godfather. And uh, my father is the godfather of his brother to do something together because I always wanted to do something. And then we met for a beer in a bar and then, then Nikin actually started. <laughs> so first the, the company was called Nikit, right? True. It was called Nikit. 
But then pretty soon Nikita, a Icelandic uh, clothing brand for, I think, skater and for women, uh, the lawyer wrote, wrote us an email saying, uh, and the letter saying that the name is too close. Nikit, Nikita is just one letter. Okay. We were registered in the same NIS classes. So I told them, look, it's just a student project. Uh, please let me just sell them. And they said, okay, it's fine. But then you have to change it. They didn't know that I have 1,000 bags, which I thought was super a lot at that time. And that it would take me three years until they're gone. And, uh, but then I met Robin and we had to change the name. And we thought that our 300 likes on, and follows of, on Facebook and Instagram were already worth a lot. So we want to have a name that is similar. Then we decided Nikin sounds pretty cool, but only realized afterwards that it's a mix between Nicholas and Robin, like the two kind of founders. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. <laughs> but we only realized that afterwards. So that wasn't on purpose. No, it was not on purpose. That's cool. Yeah. So then actually you did sort of a rebranding because you had to, but also because you wanted to, to a certain degree. Yes. And with that, you then at a certain point also shifted in terms of products because the chin bags, um, that was just a starting point, but actually you wanted to do something else. How did that happen? Well, Robin just, I mean, we just wanted to create the product, a new product, a new color, a new style, a new whatever. So then we decided that it's a winter hat because we met in October. Winter was already here or about to come. And Robin said that he was, he was coming back from Canada, walking through the woods, and he, he drew some kind of like tree logo. He had no ideas like how to use it, just thought that it was cool. I also liked it a lot. So we said, let's put it on the beanie. Then we thought tree plus beanie is trini which sounds already funny or cool. <laughs> and before with Nikit, I had the slogan like style with utility or in German Stil mit Nutzen. So we want to give an additional value or something to a product. And then we had the tree on the beanie. It was kind of clear to us that it must be planting a tree. And that's why we had maybe already beer or two and thought that was a great idea. But we also thought maybe it's a stupid idea, but we just thought like, come on, let's just try it. And it turned out pretty well. We ordered um, 60 hats, uh, stitched the labels onto it, and they were sold out in one or two days. People loved it. So we reordered them, but already sold them again online. And before we got the reorder, we, we were sold out again. Again, And that's how, how it was then. So his family started helping, night shifts of uh, us and his family. In January, then uh, his two brothers joined, then my wife. It, it went pretty fast in the beginning. And that's how it was. But it started with 60 beanies and... Yeah, it's a bit more now. That's crazy. And just like the, the real startup spirit of like fast growth and you basically yeah. sell the products be, be, before you even have them in, in your logistics department. Happened a few times later again, but uh, not on purpose. <laughs> Can you also talk a bit more about what you specifically talked about together? You know, you met and you saw, hey, we want to start a business together. We want to work on an idea together. But what were like the specific things that you discussed together except the link to the tree and the logo that uh, Robin designed. Well, we talked also about like how we divide the, the, the shares basically a little bit because we also knew, got, we knew that other people told us like, hey, just talk about that early. And I mean, we more saw, we saw it more as a like joke at that point, not joke, but like took it less serious. I mean, Robin called me one day before we launched. Hey, he thinks that it looks better if he has 45 instead of 42. Is that fine? I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, right. so this is what we talked about. Um, and basically just about uh, that we just want to do something. We just brainstormed with no like clear goal. I mean, there was really nothing else that we talked about. It was just clear for us already since a few years. We do something together mm -hmm. and we knew that was the moment. Yeah. And, and why was that feeling so clear that you wanted to do something together? I mean, you knew each other like since you were little kids, right? Yes. 
But like, wh when did that feeling get stronger and stronger and also the urge to actually do and execute something then take over? Was there any specific moment or what, what were you basically waiting for? I mean, Robin already tried something. Um, he wanted to have a clothing brand with a friend, but in the end, this clothing brand turned more into a uh, techno music label. So I was disappointed. <laughs> not, not his style. No, not his style. <laughs> and I just wanted to do something more. I mean, people pushed me. I myself had, had the urge. And like I already told, like seeing a guy wearing my product that I don't know in a completely different city, that was for me like, okay, I already managed something. I have to do something else. And th really, that was just it. I mean, I just wanted to do something. There, I don't remember if there was anything else, but I just had this like drive in me that or, or passion or I don't know. So basically, the, the first small success steps um, made you hungry for more. Definitely. Probably. Yeah, definitely. How did you then go about, you know, you said, we want to start something. Did you set yourself like a timeline uh, until when you actually want to test it? Or how do you go about that with the first 60 uh, pieces that you ordered then? Was that your testing? No, we didn't. We just wanted to try it out. I mean, Robin was already happy in the beginning after 200 sales. That was already his goal is reached. I think he had his goal that like all the people in the city know at least us. Right. I already wa uh, wanted to have more. I mean, I wanted to build a brand that people know in Switzerland. So I was pushing. I was also the one saying um, in, I think, 2018, come on, let's do this one million in sales, you know. And it sounded so crazy like uh, off that, it, that we will never get it. But I was pushing the others all the time. So I think I wanted to have like, let's say 10 employees, 1 million in sales. Don't know if that matches in the end or not. That will, I think that at some point was kind of my goal. And then when you reach it, I just wanted to have more. Yeah. On to the next goal. Yes. <laughs> but really, we had no like uh, testing phase. We just said, let's do it. But now I think I would go out there and test something first. You know, right. I would ask uh, 100, 200 people, get some, some clients for, for free or, or uh, get more feedback before you really launch. I think I would do things different now, but at that point, this na na naivety or what, what you call it was super important for us failing. I mean, we ordered shirts from, in the beginning from Asia, we were not like on the sustainable fashion thing yet, just more in the nature thing. Um, we ordered sizes XS to XL, Asian style, and we didn't know that these are different from the European XS, S and M. So like an XL was more like an, an M. We failed a lot because we were super naive, but but that was important to be fast, to just do it and just try it. We also sold sometimes products that were not perfect. We're not completely happy. Like, for example, here could have been one centimeter longer and so on. But we needed it for the speed, to get traction, to do stuff. I mean, that was for me clear that, that this is more important in the beginning to just get clients rather than having the perfect product, I believe. Now it's, of course, a bit different. But at that point, that was important. Sure, but to get started, I think that's exactly the right mindset that you're uh, looking for there. Maybe. <laughs> no, it worked out. And how do you actually split then the shares? You mentioned something of 45%. You found that a GmbH at a certain point, right? Yes, was that already in the later, beginning? Yeah. In the beginning, it was actually all of my name, Nikin Hanni, Einzelfirma, like single proprietorship. But in fact, I think it was, was it a Kollektivgesellschaft? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yes. I know, but, but that's how we did it. And, um, well, the share thing was more like I said, look, I want to have a little bit more because already, uh, created a small basis with the first clients, with the first uh, the first product, with the first social media stuff and so on. And he it was fine for him. And then his two brothers joined and we told them that they would get 3% each if they work for one, two, three years, something like that. So, yeah. W would you recommend that setup that one founder has actually more shares than the other to not getting stuck along the way? Or I think I'm the wrong 
person to ask that because for us in the end, it didn't really matter in the end. I never had the moment where I had to say, hey, I have the majority of the shares. I take the decision now. We always found a, a consensus in the end. Yeah, but I think looking back, it's still important to already think of also the future. Like even if it sounds completely not realistic to think of how it could be if you make whatever X million, million sales, this amount of employees, if someone wants to like leave the company and so on. I mean, we had some discussions with the brothers of uh, Jeff and Lester because at some point we said, you know what? We changed to a game value, just get the 3%. But then shortly after that, one of them decided to leave the company. Then it was not completely fair after also like, we were also a tiny bit too naive, but it turned out well and fine. And I. What solution did he then find with a potential shareholder leaving the company? I mean, now, like, my wife joined also pretty early, Nikin, and she also deserved at some point to have uh, the recognition of having some shares. Right. So actually, we talked to each other and they said, hey, they're happy that they're still being part of it. So they gave away 1% each to my wife. I mean, that was pretty nice of them. And, uh, that's also where we had, uh, let's say, an advantage that we were a close family and we could always talk about everything in family and the friendship was higher uh, than anything else. We even signed a contract writing in that, that the friendship should never, seriously, it should never like uh, suffer from the business relationship. And we kept that promise until now. And it's just clear for us that that's how it should be. Yeah, absolutely. And how much time did you actually invest at the beginning when you started out? Was it like, a full-time thing or did you start that part-time? No, it was part-time. Me and Robin were both studying. Um, I actually even went abroad, like on exchange. We started in October, took five weeks until we had the, the product ready. So we launched November, no, December 11th or 12th. Okay. And beginning or end of January, I went to Brazil for an exchange semester. So we were Skyping, coordinating stuff from there. And um, yeah, but already there, I was working, I don't know, five, six hours a day. In the first half a year, and then it was eight hours, and then up to 12, 13, yeah. And at the same time, also after your studies, um, you also worked at Swiss yeah. for a certain time, right? In the performance marketing department? Yeah, e-commerce and performance marketing department. Um, sounds like a very good fit. How did you balance then the two, you know, a growing company that needs a lot of attention and also resources from your side, but at the same time, you still have a day job. so. How was that a good setup for you? It was not a good setup for me. <laughs> and I also had to write my master thesis. I, in the end, didn't, didn't write it during that time. But I stood up earlier in the morning at five and uh, worked one, one and a half hours on Nikin. In a train, I worked on Nikin. During the work at Swiss, sometimes I also worked for Nikin. At least some important emails. Over lunchtime, I sometimes worked for Nikin on the way home. And in the evening, I worked for Nikin. Yeah. And then at some point, I, I had to decide... Will I continue with Swiss or do full-time Nikin? And Robin was studying and had to decide should he uh, end his studies and do Nikin or interrupt them at least. And we had to because we already had, at that point when we started to do it full-time, already 10 employees. We already had a, our office, our well, mini warehouse. So it was really not an option anymore at some point. And, um, and it was also clear that we want to do it. Uh, sure. So the company just grew too fast and too quickly yes. uh, to basically ignore it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like I said, in the beginning of 2018, we wanted to have 1 million. It sounded like such like a crazy goal. But in the end of the year, we had like 2.5 million of revenue. And we, were, and we, we only started working full-time in November. So it was like way too late already. That's crazy. 
but it worked. But that's why, I mean, I had to use these five, like seven minute train rides. I used them to write two emails. Five minute bus rides, I had to really use that time. Now I'm not that crazy anymore, like using all these five minutes and so on. But, but that was really important in the beginning. So that sounds like a very, very intense time. You were basically just working all day and then probably just going home to sleep and do it all over again the next day. Yeah. And I mean, you also always released on Sunday. So Sunday morning at 10, me and Robin were just all the time on Skype or whatever it was then. Yeah. But the thing is, if you like to do it and we loved it, it was our passion, then it's a different story. Then you like, like to work. It's not like working. It's like fulfilling your dream or, or at least trying to reach your dream of creating a brand or something. And let's also talk a bit about how you actually reached or overreached, in your case, your first goal of the 1 million in sales and then uh, just double folded it, basically. Yeah. How did you get that there to that point? What did you do uh, that you were actually able to pull that off in, in that matter and, you know, while still working on, on other things in parallel? Well, performance marketing was extremely important. We did a lot of Facebook and Instagram ads because they were super underpriced at that time. I still think they're underpriced in Switzerland. So we always only invested money into marketing when it came back. So that's basically for me, performance marketing. And we just scaled it up. And um, we were super fast and flexible, I believe. It, we were very fast to develop the products and release them. Sometimes even release the product before it was here. We realized, shit, it comes too late. We already booked a billboard at some train station and so on. So then we just ordered Express, a few products to take the pictures one day before the release, put them online, also like photographer ourselves or friends. And we just were, I think it was really flexible and, and speedy um, on the way in the beginning. That was, yeah, what made it happen in the end. That's crazy. And you would really say like now looking back that the, the focus on the performance marketing and probably also this performance mindset that you had, you know, always setting higher goals and going for the next big goal. <laughs> Um, made that possible and were the key components to, to get to that level. So what got us there in, in the first place, I believe, was this performance mindset. We were focusing on the right things, which is paid ads, which were underpriced. We were doing e-commerce uh, where we didn't need a lot of like costs. We didn't have any rent costs. We could really push that hard. And we also started with the whole sustainability thing, which I didn't mention before. Like three months after we started, people started telling us, um, guys, you're not that sustainable. You plant trees, which is great. But as long as you have caps or beanies from China, it doesn't really make sense. So we checked out what is sustainability in the sustainable fashion. And we saw it's too expensive. Young people cannot afford it. So then we started to, besides planting trees, also wanting to make sustainable fashion affordable. And there we started early with that, well, early three years ago with that, trend that even became stronger at that point. And I think we focused also on the right thing in that moment. They started to get stronger. Tree planting started to become popular already a little bit. So that also helped, like putting the right focus. And um, we also hired a lot of people that um, did not have skills in anything that we needed at that point, but they had the great fit. And then we trained them. We trained them in custom service, uh, social media, logistics, uh, per, um, product development, things we didn't know that much either or it had a bit more experience and that helped in the end to have like people with drive mindset that were not here for the money because they had startup salaries, not that great salaries, but they had the passion, the drive and some of that in the end helped. And also we didn't pay ourselves a high salary. I think it took one and a half years until we paid ourselves the first salary. So we were so pretty you low. You worked cost. for free at the first one and a half years. Yes. I think from beginning of 2018, we started to pay something small, but it was pretty little. Yeah. And that's why in the end of 2018, we made half a million of profit and we only started working full time in November. And that was like, 
wow, I think we can do, we can do way more and um, at the same time do something good, inspire people, plant trees. So that was super motivating. Absolutely. So there are, again, uh, several points that I would like to, to go a bit deeper because you mentioned so many cool and interesting, important things. So the first thing is about, you actually solved a really important problem. You know, people wanted to have sustainable fashion, but couldn't afford it, or it was too expensive for what it actually delivered to them. So to a certain degree, you solved the problem, made it more affordable. At the same time, you also mentioned that you plant a tree for a, a product. How did that idea happen that you say, hey, for every product that we have in our tree line, we actually go out and plant the tree because that's also a, one, a big, big part of your marketing and USP at the moment. Yeah, I mean, the idea came in the beginning because we had the slogan style with utility. We want to add utility or a value or additional whatever to a product. And when we decided to put the tree logo onto the winter hat, it was just obvious that it has to be tree planting. And both of us were scouts. So we had some connection to nature. We wanted to give something back. And yeah, the other problem that we tried to solve with expensive sustainable fashion was more something of our customers asked us to like be more sustainable in terms of material, place of production. But the way how it was at that point did just not make sense to us. So it's also a personal thing. Like after we learned what sustainable fashion means, it, yeah, it just did not make sense for me. And I was like, come on, it should be possible to produce something in Europe with okay materials and uh, offer it for a good price. And also now we're still on the way to getting this perfect combination or good compromise between price, fair price, and sustainable fashion. And we will never be or have the perfect sustainable product because I believe you cannot have this perfect sustainable pro uh, product. There's always a reason why this is better, why this is better, it's different attitudes. There's no like generally accepted definition for sustainable fashion, but we're always trying to continue to improve ourselves. And the more we buy, the more we sell, the higher, more power we have towards suppliers, the more we can ask them to use this material to test this out. And um, so we're still on the way. <laughs> but I think also from the outside, your positioning is you want to have it affordable, but also the most uh, sustainable that is affordable for that budget, right? So you exactly. actually do strive for a good balance there. And I think that's also your perfect sweet spot, probably. Uh, in Switzerland, it is for sure. I mean, we're cheaper than branded T-shirts from Nike, Adidas, whatever. And I believe our quality is better and it's made in Europe and it's made of sustainable materials and the tree is planted. And so 35 francs for this tree shirt is actually a pretty fair price in my opinion. However, in Germany, we have more issues there. We're not that cheap, actually. Mm -hmm. We're not a cheap brand and um, there we have more competition. We already have quite some customers, but it's more difficult. But here, I think there's not much competition when it comes to offering this for a good price, I think. But I hope that there's more competition because I want that more people plant trees, more people come because the more sustainable brands there are, the more credibility also we get, the more demand we get. So I don't think like uh, as, what to call it, like uh, competitors. I think, yeah, I hope that it gets bigger actually this whole market because we will benefit from it in the end. So this is also a really authentic statement. And you know, the way that you just described it felt like a natural thing, how everything evolved and then planting tree. W were there any you know, discussions between you and Robin or maybe also other parties involved where you said, hey, this is actually a rapidly growing market, uh, sustainable fashion, um, this is the perfect customer segment, there's uh, good money to be made. Was there also any strategic level or strategic discussion that you had about the attractiveness of the market? Because from what you described, it sounds very authentic, it's also very natural. So you just 
ended up in that spot where you are today, you make it sound pretty easy, but were there also like strategic discussions that you had for the market attractiveness and so on? Not that much, actually. Okay, sure. We, we just, we cared a lot about what our customers said and people around us. That was really important and it's still important to us. I mean, every single negative feedback that we have, we at least hear that someone said something. Of course, it's, it's the same thing over and over again, then, then that's it. But if something new comes like, hey guys, you have bamboo, but did you think that this and this and this happens? We get to know about that. So we care about that. And that was also in the beginning. So we wanted to like do something for which we can really, really stand for. And that's why it was important to just listen to the customers. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And then you combine that with your background and listening to the customer, the customer focus. And then you end up in a very nice position. Yeah. I think we took many decisions intuitively, but the right one. But it was also because we were just naive and just did, just did what our first guess or first gut like feeling told us. And not everything worked out, but many things. But I think that's important, you know, that, that there's like no master plan. You can probably wait as you were waiting for the perfect idea. You can probably wait for the perfect master plan. Will never happen. You have to go out and do things. We also did not have a business plan. We just started it. And um, I mean, of course, if you have some more complex thing, then I think a business plan makes sense if you need investors and so on. But in our case, we never really needed it. But obviously, sometimes we made plannings, like then we go there, then we do that, then this product. But like, uh, yeah, not in the beginning. Yeah. And today, uh, this authenticity that we talked about is... Uh, also a very important thing uh, of you. I think you also mentioned that when you were uh, participating in the Swiss Economic uh, Forum Award, basically, um, where they actually gave you the feedback from all the pitches that you did and the story that you told them, you are so authentic and that was a really positive feedback. Yeah, I mean, I like to tell the story, but I don't like to say that I'm authentic or Nikens authentic because it sounds a little bit cocky and arrogant actually. But that's the feedback we got a lot from online customers that we are authentic. Mm -hmm. um, but also in the Swiss Economic Forum, we there went to several pitches and, and uh, every time they told us, you know, what is so interesting about you? You're so open, honest, and especially authentic. And at that point I was thinking like, oh, wow, I felt flattered. But at the same time, I also felt like, okay, that's a little bit sad that this is like a unique selling whatever thing, you know, that we distinguish ourselves to others that we are more authentic. And um, so the others are not real to a certain degree. I mean, the others be... were also great companies and I think authentic, but some of we were more in the way how we were. We, we were just honest about everything. And also our customers, we asked them once in a survey, we gave them 15 adjectives and asked them which ones fit the most to us. 80% chose sustainable and 65%, uh, that's the second most uh, chosen one, is uh, authentic. And that was really interesting for us to see. At the same time, you also, I think that also shows, you know, you, you once mentioned to me that, you know, also your Instagram posts, for example, they are not these perfectly polished ideal world shots that you take there, but just regular human beings. And again, this comes down to this authenticity that I think is uh, an important core part of your brand and I, what you stand exactly. for. Exactly. In the beginning, it was really bad pictures. But people liked it, you know, we post a lot of like our customers wearing stuff. Mm -hmm. Now we have better pictures, but no top models, nothing, just like normal people. And in the beginning, when we switched that a little bit, our old customers told us, hey guys, we missed the old pictures actually. Wow. That was really interesting to see. But now people tell us they like that with the bikini models, we didn't have this perfect model that uh, we never have any models. We never, well, not we never pay, but we always ask volunteers to come. We give them nicking stuff, sometimes a bit of money and so on. and that. That makes it authentic, I guess, also in the end. 
And that's super interesting because you also told me that you have more content or more pictures coming in from your fan or customer base than you can actually use. So you are actually able to build a very strong community behind your brand. And I think that's also an incredible value that you built there. Can you maybe also talk a bit more, were there any conscious decisions to make that happen or how were you actually able to execute that and build a community, something that is really, really tricky to do successfully? Well, we need the content, so we ask photographers and then we realize photographers are just way too expensive uh, in Switzerland, at least for a startup that doesn't have a lot of money. So we made an Instagram story and asked the, our community, hey, does anyone feel like taking pictures for us in exchange for product? And within half an hour, 20 photographers wrote us. So we took the Instagram story away because there were so many to reply right. to. And ever since then, we, we do this, like we, we give products to let's say, amateur or very good amateur photographers and they send us pictures. And that's why we have a problem that many companies don't have, which is we have too much content. We sometimes don't have too many pictures and we cannot use all the pictures. And that's actually a luxury problem in the end. Doesn't mean that we never pay, for example, for a great video or so, but for pictures, 95% is from our community, from people that like us, follow us, like to take pictures. And that's cool. I'm sure you like that because then there's more money left for performance marketing. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Let's also talk a bit about obstacles. What I find very impressive is that you built the whole company without any external money from investors. So yeah. you still own the company with your core team. There's no one else in there. And bootstrapping a company to that level, I think last year did almost 8 million in revenue. That's super impressive, but I can imagine also very challenging. So can you talk a bit about what that actually meant and how you were able to bootstrap the company to that success where you are today? Yeah, we started nicking them with only 5,000 francs and we had no investors. Um, after one or two years, we had some small loans from friends and family, but never any investors. And that was only possible through flexibility and many, many things where we had to look to the money. And most important was the whole performance marketing aspect. We did not like invest into branding where you only get the return back in three to six months. We didn't build brand first, we just sold products. So if you think of the whole marketing funnel, the sales funnel where you have to do branding, then you have the whole social proof and mid, mid funnel part and so on. I think we kind of like switched that. We first just put the product into the focus and just sold. Mm -hmm. And that actually helped in the end to build a customer base and only afterwards start doing the branding. I mean, obviously by selling products, you also do branding, but um, that was important. And performance marketing is great because you see immediately what comes back, what not. You can start Facebook and Instagram ads and all the other like social paid ads with, let's say, five francs a day, theoretically one franc a day, sure. and then see what comes back. And when it comes back, when you have a return of two, three, four, five, you just increase the budget and so on. And that's why that's how we scaled it to, yeah, a lot of money that we spend now on uh, paid social ads. But um it was a sustainable way to grow because we could stop it at any time. We did not commit 100,000, 200,000 for some TV ad and didn't know if it comes back or not. And we got the money immediately back through credit card payments or within two, three weeks if it was by invoice. Yeah, that was, I think, the most important part besides many other things, but that was super important. So you basically set up your own money printing machine to a certain degree. It felt like that during a certain time, a little bit, because whatever we did, it just worked. But uh, it also had to do with like going where the attention is kind of underpriced. 
as Gary Vee, for example, would say a lot. And Instagram and Facebook ads is really underpriced. Still, I think it got more expensive. I mean, we got sales for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten francs. We acquired new customers five to ten francs, and that was that was crazy. I mean, yeah. So we were just investing the money at the right time, at the, in the right place, and that worked out. But where have you actually learned all about this performance marketing? Because that's something I felt also studying at the same university as you have. That's not a topic there. You don't learn the, the hands-on tactics, how to execute that. So where have you learned that? You don't know, learn when you're studying what a pixel is, what the sales funnel is, uh, what the ROAS, ROI on ad spend, whatever it is. It was just learning by doing. I was pretty much interested in it. But they already tried earlier on to sell some t-shirts online, do some ads. And um, yeah, you had to learn a lot. And I failed a lot. I did many mistakes. But then I also realized it's all written online in the internet. You can read all the blogs, all the tricks, hacks, uh, what to do, don'ts, and so on. And um, yeah, but I didn't learn it while studying. It was just learning by doing. So why did you then still decide to do a master's after you already realized that you know, don't learn the, the stuff that you need for your own business there? <laughs> it's a good question. But I started Nikin like after Nikit, which was before I started Nikin in my first semester during my master's. And... Um, I was not sure how far it would go. It was only clear after one, one and a half years that it would maybe become something. So by the time I decided to go full-time with Nikin, I did all the courses except for my master thesis. That's why, yeah, it was just not that high yet until I finished all the courses, but... And then the, the, the master thesis, that would just be like a too small piece to just let go of the whole master's degree, yes. right? But I was thinking for a very long time to maybe not do my master's, but it would have been such a pity because I did this double master thing in St. Colin and uh, just because of one thesis, we just have to give some extra effort it would have been too much of a pity. And I also would have felt a little bit ashamed towards my father who, who I had the luck that he financed my studies to just because of that not do it. But if I had one year of studying and then had Nikin, I would have not finished my master's. Uh, well, that's a statement. <laughs> So let's also continue to talk a bit about the challenges because you were then after the study still working at Swiss yeah. and also doing Nikin. I can imagine that must have also been a, a tough challenge to balance the two. Any success tips on how to successfully balance your day job with your uprising e-commerce startup in your case? <laughs> well, go and work for a team where you can be flexible in terms of how and when you work. Have a flexible boss that understands if sometimes you have to go earlier. I mean, I think that's important and use every single minute that you have, like small breaks of five minutes. I mean, do customer service while you're on the toilet, on the working break. These are basically things that you have to do. Be flexible. I think that was important during that time. And you just have to be aware that you have to invest a lot of time, not always, but most of the cases, it's really about just putting in the work, the effort and believing in what you do. I think that was important. Yeah. And you also constantly reinvested, as you said, you didn't take any salary first for the first one and a half years. Yes. I mean, bootstrapping obviously was important during that time. I mean, but that was important with or without Swiss. But I mean, this whole bootstrapping with uh, like using your private credit card sometimes, um, sometimes paying invoices and many, many, many other things like were extremely important to scale it. Uh. Was there any like situation that you were in where you said, shit, I don't know if we can actually continue with the company? Yeah, all the time it happens. I mean, you have a lot of like ups and downs when you have a startup and you had that a lot. If you had a day with a good release, good sales, I felt like a king. But then another day we had, let's say, um, we were we had a great winter and then we thought, okay, summer will be awesome. Mm -hmm. Then we realized, oops, shit, summer is not that great. We don't have that many summer products. So the sales were worse. 
And I felt like, okay, I don't think that we can really bring that thing up, but then you have to motivate yourself again. So yeah, there were many downs. And the, the issue is right now that the downs and ups were like that, but now I think it's like this, you know, it's like huge Way ups, more extreme. huge downs. Yeah. It's like, and that's pretty difficult to handle for me sometimes. How do you do it? Do you have any tips there or what do you do when you get like super high that, you know, it will eventually also get much worse. And what do you do when it's super low, but it will eventually also get better again? Well, when it's super high, just enjoy, enjoy. These are the nice moments. This, these are the moments you're living for when you want to, when you build something. This is, this is where you feel like now I'm getting all the, all the, like the return, the feelings back and all like what I've done. I'm, 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 I'm yeah, I'm just happy then. But like when you have downs, well, you have to talk to people. Me and Robin, like my co-founder, talk to each other a lot. And when I have a down, he might be as an up and motivates me. I talk to my wife. I think it's a lot about like um, also sometimes stop working. This is something I have to learn. I couldn't do in the beginning. Going home when you feel like it's really not good, then stop working. But of course, if you're not good because there's a problem, then you have to solve it. But I'm just talking about if something is not going well that you cannot solve immediately. In any case, you cannot focus. You have to know how to also make breaks and... Um, that's something you have to learn along the way. What helps you to get distracted from work in a, in a positive way or just clear your mind? Because you're That's working so is. much, right? Um, <laughs> I don't know if you still have time to get that stuff done. <laughs> but what I started doing is like stop working at around seven o'clock. Okay. Because at some point when I always worked in the evening, my wife uh, got a little bit, well, not mad, but said, come on, we want to spend more time together. And uh, then I realized, okay, what can I do? I mean, I cannot work less. It's needed now. So I started to wake up earlier in the morning, started to wake up at five and be at six at the office, work until seven. So that's what I do. And then when I'm home, I mostly just shut off. I have dinner with my wife. Sometimes we talk about Nikin, but we watch series. We go to a restaurant. Um, we sometimes also say we both have a rule where we say we can say, let's stop talking about Nikin. Then the other person has to respect it. Because sometimes you want to speak about it, but if the other doesn't feel like it, then the person can say it and then it's over. And what I also like to do is to, to meet, like the standard stuff, meet friends, cook, do sports. That's basically it in the end. Uh, or delete my apps. On holidays, sometimes I deleted Microsoft Teams, Outlook, and so on. This is something I had to do last year, for example. Yeah, otherwise you constantly check, right? Because yeah. it's your baby and you just yes. want to see... What's yes. going on? And one thing I also had to learn is don't check emails or Teams messages and so on before you go to bed. Like one hour before you go to bed, you should stop doing that. Otherwise, you will only read the negative headline. You will feel like opening it. And then you will think of it falling asleep. And then in my case, it's going to be in my dreams, which is stupid. Yeah. And then you sleep bad and then you have yes. less energy tomorrow. And yeah. exactly. <laughs> it's a whole negative cycle, basically. Yes. Yeah. And if you don't know it, it doesn't bother you. It's that simple. That's how it is. <laughs> Ideally, it's not always easy. Um, let's also talk about like one more challenge. Um, what was like the biggest challenge so far looking back? I know this is usually hard because there are many and they come in completely different forms. But if you had to name one challenge and give us a specific example, what was like the biggest challenge that you had to overcome? Well, not having money, I think was the biggest challenge, to be honest. So many times you could have ordered more products. We could have did this. We could have... Um, had maybe even a better material, could have uh, chosen the better supplier, could have done branding, um, could have paid higher salaries to hire people that know it better than us. Right. I really think that not having money in bootstrapping was the biggest challenge. But in the end, the thing that makes me the most proud of that we still managed it to like get some growth with 
without money. But at the same time, don't you think that this is exactly in your DNA that actually got you here to that point? Because if you would have had more money, maybe not like saying that it had to be that, but maybe people tend to spend it lavishly on stupid things without any return. And then in the end, you probably actually go out of business because you didn't spend your money wisely and you didn't have to bootstrap and really turn every penny twice to make sure that it goes in the right direction. I think you're completely right. This whole like, I didn't think of it like that yet, actually. But I think this whole bootstrapping was part of it. I also asked an agency to help us brand ourselves. And they told us, yeah, yeah we can do that. 50,000 francs. And we're like, okay, we don't have that money. And uh, if you had an investor of uh, that gave us, I don't know, whatever, X amounts, we might have done that at that point. But then our whole brand with authenticity, like speed, tree planting, trying to be open, transparent, go and visit the suppliers, do this and that. I think things would have been completely different. So I believe, I think actually you're right. I think that was part of the whole development and made us, gave us the branding, the image and uh, made us think how we, how we think now. I mean, this whole performance marketing mindset, um, saving money, like only invest if it really makes sense. So we still have that. I mean, we're not rich, not at all, but we still have to look for the money, but it's a little bit less an issue like in the beginning. We're not living month by month at the moment. And that's, that's nice. Yeah, because, you know, the beautiful thing about bootstrapping is it really lets you, you have to focus on the things that are working and kill everything that's not working because otherwise it kills you. Exactly. Yeah. And if you don't do that, eventually you just might then extend the death of your company to a certain degree. Uh, but that way that you built it, everything bootstrapped, that's uh, probably what got you here where you are today. Yeah. Can Were there we? any investors that approached you? No, because you also build a strong brand and uh, people notice you. You also got um, voted as Argar of the Year, for example. So you got a lot of publicity in a strong brand. I'm sure that there must have been investors that approached and said, hey, actually, I want to invest. Well, we had a few investors approaching us, but honestly, not that many. I mean, one from Germany, two from Switzerland and... Um, but yeah, we're getting also awareness in the whole like business world. But in the end, I mean, we're surprised that our story, which I believe is cool from really cliche from the garage to now, I don't know. Yeah. Having a bigger office and, and, uh, we saw the floors. You even have two floors now. It's yeah, crazy. We have two floors <laughs> and having hundred thousand customers in Switzerland and so on. Um, we never uh, got coverage, media coverage in like uh, 20 minutes, like uh, Watson and so on, all the big newspapers and. I'm surprised because I think, isn't that something cool to tell? Isn't that maybe inspiring for other entrepreneurs to also try something out? But yeah, I mean, we'll continue doing our thing. It works, but I'm still sometimes a bit surprised. Yeah. Absolutely. And what made you resist the money that was offered to you from these investors that showed interest? Well, at this point, they're also before we wanted complete like independence because that helped us taking decisions that uh, maybe other investors would not have given the okay. I mean, the amount of money invested into Facebook and Instagram ads seemed like insane and crazy. And uh, I think like uh, telling that to someone or uh, justifying that would have been difficult. How much have you invested so far? I think it's a very high number if you are open to share. Yeah, well, last year we spent 1.7 million on it. And that's something I also like to speak. Well, now I am, but like not that openly and tell it to everybody because it's difficult for people to understand like, well, guys, you spent half a million on trees, but 1.7 on uh, on Facebook ads and so on. But what people then would understand, if we invested less in Facebook ads, we would have planted less trees. Yeah. We would have less of an impact. And um, 
Yeah, that's why it's sometimes difficult to judge uh, or justify that towards people, but uh, it's just what is needed. It's, it completely makes sense to do that. It's like 50 times cheaper than TV ads and doing something on 20 minutes than, than uh, print and all of these things than uh, billboards. And um, I don't understand why not more companies focus even more on that. No, that's a good uh, take-home message from the podcast, <laughs> I would say. So another topic that I'm highly interested in. So... Although you're not directly related, but you're sort of set up as a family business. You know, your friend from, from childhood, basically, your wife, Carla, works with you. How is that working out? Because many people also recommend that, no, 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 don't sp uh, start a business with your wife or with your partner or with your best friend. You basically did all of that. <laughs> yeah, we did, we did a lot of things that uh, experienced entrepreneurs and business people say don't do it. But building a business with friends and family, I think, is really rewarding and really helps in many aspects. I mean, first of all, there's a certain trust yeah, from the very beginning on. And um, you also have, in a certain way, respect with each other and know each other already better. You know when someone has a bad day. I think that helps. And um, also going away and leaving the decision to another person, I think you just feel way more comfortable. I, I would do it again, to be honest. But I would also like try to build a business more with people that have similar skill sets and uh, that's not similar like different skill sets like our expert <laughs> and um that's something where i believe we should have had more people in the beginning with more skills that's that's something that i learned i would build it again mm -hmm. but uh, what skills would have been helpful from the beginning but logistics for example we had okay. no clue about logistics i think their skills would have been very important in the beginning I think someone who has more of the product folks, I mean, Robin did know how to uh, manage or design products. I didn't either. We just learned it. I think having someone there would have had, would have helped. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, it depends on the area you're in, but that's what we would have needed in the beginning. Is there anything that you do have to pay special attention to when you actually have, uh, you know, work that you also share with your uh, partner, with your wife, but also with your friend? Something to have special attention to is just to be able to like separate private life and business, which I have to be honest, I don't always manage. But that's really important that you have moments where you say now it's a non-business time. Like I already told earlier, you have to have certain ground rules. And also me and Robin, we were friends in the, be in the beginning. We're still friends, but we only talk about business. So once a month we go and have dinner together and also not talk about Nick and then sometimes. I think you should not forget about that. And um, yeah, I think that's really important. Yeah, that's to not forget the relationship that it's also not only business, also other things. Yeah. Because otherwise you just end up with a business partner, but basically lose your friend, right? Yeah. But it's really not easy to keep both a friend and a business partner at the same time. Let's also quickly look where you stand today. Um, you share some numbers with me. You have a three-digit growth over 100% from uh, last year. You had a 7.6 million revenue in 2019. And as we already mentioned, planted 500,000 trees so far. Yes. I think these are incredible numbers and you're probably just about to grow the same amount again this year. This is really crazy. How does that make you feel? This is a massive company, actually. I'm super proud. But the point, the thing that I'm most proud of is that we started with really 5,000 francs and that we didn't have investors and managed to scale it to a in my opinion, decent size. And at the same time, like building something that has nice numbers, nice, like 100,000 customers, X million revenue, also customers abroad. 
but doing something good and also having an impact and kind of even having some kind of shared value kind of like approach and believing in what you do and being proud of it. I think that's that's so rewarding. And in the end, the numbers are great. I mean, it motivates me, to be honest. But what motivates me most is when I see people telling me that it's nice or seeing people that wear anything that I don't know. I mean, at the moment, I see it every day, but it's still like so motivating to to know that you built something with not a lot in your hands in the beginning that, that yeah, that is known and has an impact. And uh, that's how I feel. Absolutely. Proud. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I mean, creating something out of nothing with that impact. And I also, I think it's, very impressive how many people out there are wearing your products. It's always obvious to me uh, when I, you know, walk through the main station or something, I see, oh, there's a Nikon cool. person, there's a Nikon person. That's just super impressive. But you also have the tree focus, you know, once you, right. you're trying to spot them, you see them a lot. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So maybe slightly biased, but it's still impressive to see that, I mean, they still need to wear it. So there are still many people out there who actually wear it. Also, you know, if we look on the paper value, probably with the shares that you have, you're probably at least on paper millionaire by now. Yeah, but I mean, it doesn't matter so much. <laughs> Maybe I am on paper millionaire, but I don't care about that. I mean, I have now a salary that I can afford everything I want. Whatever more money I will get will not make me happier. However, I also have to say, if at some point, I don't know if we sell Nikin or not, or I mean, we're also open now to have investors, to be honest, not right now, but in the future, potentially. Right. I would like to have financial independence and uh, building up more things, building up. I mean, I have 30 kilograms of tea in my cellar. I want to build a tea brand. I want to have my bar one day, maybe in Brazil, because my wife is Brazilian. I would like to have some money on the side to be able to do a sabbatical when I have my first kids to spend a lot of time with him or her. It's not that I don't want some money, but it's not the most important thing for me, to be honest. Was there like any goal where you said, hey, in five years, we want to be there or um, I want to have this amount of money in my bank account to be financially free or any of that sort? Did you have any of that sort of motivation? No, not really. I mean, I think maybe at some point in my life, I thought maybe it's cool to call yourself millionaire, but... I think it's more cool to call yourself founder of Nikin and planter of trees and acquiring customers with not a lot of budget. That's way cooler. Absolutely. And now we don't really have a goal. I mean, except for one goal is to make Nikin less dependent on me and Robin and Carla, my wife and so on. I think that's important that at some point we can also give it to another like CEO, another whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the most important goal because I don't know if we will sell Nikon at some point, if we will have investors, or if we will just be in the in the board and um, do something else. I have no idea. But for that, we just need to be a more mature company, have a running ERP system, better processes, and especially less dependence on us. Yeah. So you still see many tasks and things to do that you want to improve There's a lot change. to do, yeah. Um, I think that's good. That's always that founder mindset. So what can we expect from Nikon in the future? Will you go to new markets? You are already active in, in Germany, more or less happy as I heard from you. <laughs> and there are new products coming, maybe completely new markets that you want to uh, tackle. So what can people expect from Nikon and you in the future? Well, we want to increase our brand awareness even more now in Switzerland. And like I said, like first we sold products and in the sales funnel, we, we turned it. So now we're here. Now we're doing the whole branding thing. And in Germany, we want to acquire more customers. We have 30 to 40,000 customers, but there's way more potential there. So uh, we want to actually conquer the German market as we did in Switzerland, but that's going to be a huge challenge. How are you going to do that? Because you mentioned that your products there are 
probably a bit too expensive for the market. We have to lower our prices. We have to change our marketing, potentially build up a marketing team in Germany. Um, and maybe for that, we do need some kind of branding where we only get returned three to six months later. Um, have to do more geographic, geographical micro-targeting, not just target whole Germany. I mean, at some point, we just targeted two, um, what do you call it, um, Bundesländer, like kind of cantons. And then realized, gosh, it's still double of Switzerland in terms of inhabitants. <laughs> we should go even smaller. I mean, there, to be honest, we're not sure how to do it. And maybe we need an investor that at some point helps us to really invest the money there in, in a team, in people, in branding and so on. Yeah, but that would be more a strategic, not financial investor, right? Because you want to have access to their sales channels and so on. Both. I mean, also financially, like if you do branding by branding channels where you know the return will not come immediately. Okay. Yeah, then you need liquidity. Yes. Right. Got it. So to finish this episode, um, we would like to hear about your favorite gadgets and resources. So are there any gadgets or tools that you use yourself on a regular basis that you can recommend to others? Well, I use a lot of online tools. I love online tools such as Facebook ads library, where you can check all companies and see what ads they have. We use that as a resource of inspiration. <laughs> Steal with pride. Um, answer the public is a cool tool. You can enter a keyword there and just gives you 50 questions related to the keyword. It's great for content ideas, for blogs, for whatever posts or whatever you want to do. I love the simple tools like Google Trends, where you can basically see how's the demand for a product right. um, because it shows you how much something is being searched for in relation to other times. I like Google Keyword Planner, where you can really see really how many times is something searched for. Um, there you can also see the demand for a potential product. I like uh, content scheduling and analytic tools such as Later, which you can use for free and uh, helps you streamline your content uh, posting processes. What else do I like? Um, yeah, these are some tools that came to my mind. Oh, Hunter.io, I love that. That's you can cool enter any, any uh, a website and then it tells you all the email addresses that, that they can find on the internet and tells you the structure of an email address. For example, first name dot last name at whatever company. And that's how you find the email addresses of the head of marketing from this company, the head of HR of this. This is a tool I use a lot. Also great for B2B sales. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> are there any physical tools that you use? Except your smartphone. <laughs> Honestly, nothing. I use the, the thing to close the camera because I believe that's, no, that's not a great tool. No, I don't, do, uh, I don't think I use any tool. Probably making water bottle. That's... Yeah, I mean, I use this to have always cool water with me. I have a small penny board when I'm too late to go to the train that they can always um, be fast. I have one penny board here and the scooter at my home that whenever I'm too late that I can kind of like save time. Cool. Um, that's basically it. I don't have any physical tool. Good. And are there any like resources that you would recommend uh, our listeners to have a look at, like books, blogs, podcasts, anything of that sort? Oh, first of all, if you have a topic that you're interested in, just Google it. I mean, there's always a podcast or a blog. And um, blogs that I like when it comes to social media are uh, later, Ad Espresso, that's about uh, paid ads though. Um, one book I also like that I always read before we go and uh, visit suppliers is um, called Kiss, Bow or Handshakes. It's a book that tells you about the culture of a country, business culture, private culture. For example, in Switzerland, it's written that rather older people always look at the shoes. And uh, I think that's true when I ask my parents, that's, that's how it is. Or when you go to Brazil, or when you go to Poland, I think that's a book I love. Or Cashvertising, I also love. It's a book that tells different marketing techniques. 
However, many of them didn't work for us, but it still helped me to change the way of thinking like that small things um, do have a difference. It, it uh, helped me to make different ad tests and so on. That's uh, something I really like. And in general, just like go to LinkedIn and uh, search for a keyword and look what people write about it. And if you have a question, just write them. Many will actually answer you. And that's, uh, I think, one of the biggest resources people should think of, which is people. Just ask them. There's more people that will answer you than you actually think. So you should not be afraid. And that's something we did a lot. Also, not in the beginning, but then after some time to just ask. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I find your mindset really refreshing. You know, <laughs> just go out there, try things out, approach people if you want to uh, pick their brain or just talk to them. Just go out there and do it. And don't be afraid if it's not working out. I think that's a, a very refreshing uh, take. Thank so, you. Yeah. Thank you very much for today's episode. It was a lot of fun. And really, I admire what you've built with Nikin. Uh, it's a fantastic story and uh, really impressive. So thank good luck for the future. And thank you for your time today. Thank you, too. Thanks. Thank you for tuning into today's episode. Stay connected with the Swisspreneur community through our LinkedIn and Instagram profiles. Make sure to subscribe to our show on whatever podcast platform you're using. See you next week for a brand new episode of the Swisspreneur Show.